Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Cambiamento. Tahir. Jirgelekte. Sakula Ijaya. Food. Change. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Sphin podcast. I'm Valentina Gritti, Global Community and Project Manager at the Slow Food Youth Network. The Slow Food Youth Network, or as we call it Sphin, is a worldwide network of young activists with different backgrounds who want to contribute to a better local and international food system. The episode of today is part of the series dedicated to the latest advocacy updates in Europe and it's led by the Slow Food Europe office based in Brussels. The advocacy topic we will dig in today is the current food security crisis in Europe, an effect of the war in Ukraine. In this episode you will get different perspectives on this topic, in particular by Nick Jacobs, director of IPS Food, Natalie Bulldog, researcher at the Institute for Sustainable Development and International Relations, and David Peacock, a slow food farmer in Germany. I leave now the word to our host for the advocacy series, Alice Poiron, the communication officer at Slow Food Europe. Ukraine is one of the world's most fertile countries. And even its flag symbolizes the most common Ukrainian landscape, a yellow field of grain under blue, blue sky. Now, those fields of grain have been scorched. The consequences of these shameful acts are there for everyone to see. Global wheat prices are skyrocketing. And it's the fragile countries and vulnerable populations that suffer the most. And again, our answer is and must be to mobilize greater collaboration and support at the European and global level. Since the war in Ukraine broke out, the words food security are on everyone's lips. As you just heard Yoselav von der Leyen explain, The conflict has had rippling effects on millions of people's lives, with President Putin holding the specter of hunger over their head. Ukraine and Russia being such big producers and exporters of grain, elsewhere concerns are indeed mounting over potential food shortages. Meanwhile, the conflict has sent global food prices skyrocketing, which are hitting the poorest populations the hardest. To cope with this crisis, some in Europe have suggested to lower environmental standards in agriculture in favor of increasing food production. Others, like Slow Food, warn that this is a mistake, because these environmental targets outlined in the EU's flagship food policy, the EU Farm to Fork Strategy, are necessary to build a truly sustainable food system in the long run. We hear many things about this food crisis, and this is a complex topic to grasp. Food supply chains, rising prices, market speculation, food production, All these words regularly appear in the news, in political leaders' mouth. But what is behind them? Where does this food crisis come from? How does it impact Europe and the world? How can we feed the world without the Ukrainian crops? Do we really need to produce more food while other farming alternatives are just waiting to be scaled up? Let's take a step back. I asked Nick Jacobs, director of the International Panel of Experts on International Food Systems, to give us the big picture about this crisis what it is about and why it is happening. Because things are always more complex than they seem and the war in Ukraine may only be the tree that hides the forest. The first thing to say about this crisis um, is that it's not a crisis of food production. 
if we look in terms of net production and consumption of wheat or maize or soy around the world, um, we're not seeing a supply shortage. What, what we are seeing is a crisis of access and availability. Uh, so food supplies are being disrupted. Uh, we are seeing major disruptions in the Black Sea region as a cause of this war, um, leading to temporary shortages, leading to panic buying. And so that is creating problems of access for a number of countries, and it's certainly pushing prices very high. And you know, given how many millions of people are living in food, security, food insecurity in the world, living below the poverty line, very near the poverty line, uh, a food price crisis really is a food security crisis. But this food crisis that we are experiencing is not coming out of nowhere, and it's not only a consequence of the war in Ukraine. Our food system has been very vulnerable for years due to a mix of interlinked factors which the war has exacerbated. The first big weakness in the food system is food import dependency. So the countries that are hardest hit by this crisis are countries in the Middle East, uh, North Africa, East Africa principally, who are very dependent on imports of wheat from the Black Sea region and from global markets in general. The problem there. Um, is not about global supply. It's about food supply chains and trade networks that are simply too concentrated, too dependent on a couple of links. And when there's disruption, that that really affects um, those food importing countries, uh, which also tend to be low income, highly indebted countries as well. Um, the second big weakness uh, that we talk about is the rigid nature of our food production systems. We have production systems Uh, which are very highly specialized, where farmers are really locked into producing one type of crop in a particular, often highly industrialized production model. Um, so that, that leaves us with few options when you have a crisis like this, and it prevents um, the kind of response, the agility that, that you'd want to see on the production side to be able to respond to, to changing circumstances. The third big structural weakness that we identified is kind of a dysfunctioning market, essentially. Um, we don't have enough transparency on global grain stocks. They're too concentrated in the hands of a few big players. And when you have that um, uncertainty and that lack of transparency, that tends to lead to financial speculation. And we're also seeing a repeat of the 2008 food price crisis with big influx of financial speculators into agricultural commodity markets, uh, people really betting on the price of food going up and trying to make a gain from that. The final structural flaw we point to is perhaps the biggest one. It's these underlying vicious cycles of poverty, um, hunger, climate change and conflict. And the key point here is that, you know, e even when the Ukraine war comes to an end, Um, it won't be the end of the global security crisis and a global food security crisis. And actually, the beginning of the war in Ukraine wasn't the beginning of the hunger crisis either. Um, rates of hunger have been rising globally since 2015. Then they accelerated very rapidly through the pandemic and again through this war. So, food import dependency, rigid food production systems, a dysfunctioning market and vicious cycles of poverty, hunger, climate change and conflict. Wow. Clearly, our food production system needs a complete revamp. And what about Europe? How does it impact us here? I asked Nathalie Bolduc, researcher at IDRI, an independent policy research institute on sustainability, to shed some light on this. 
That's a big question, and I think I'd like to start by breaking it down into a couple of different uh, different pillars so that it's more easily understand, understood. So first, on the food security part of the discussion, because when we talk about food systems, we have to put together the consumption and the production side. Um, and so on the food security issue, we think about economic accessibility, stability, utilization, and availability as different pillars of food security. And just to unpack that a little bit, economic accessibility means do you have or does uh, the population at large have some sort of way to buy food or trade for food? And then I'd like to also focus in on the availability pillar which is talking about, okay, is there food somewhere available in the vicinity of these people? And so right now on the consumption side, we see that in the EU, the economic accessibility pillar is more challenged because prices have been rising. And even though European consumers spend less, about 15% of their budgets on food, and that's significantly less than people in other parts of the world, particularly in developing countries, we see that this can still cause some issues for the poorest and the most marginalized as prices rise, because they will have to be spending more of their smaller budgets on food. On the availability pillar, we don't see as many problems. That is, is the EU going to suddenly run out of food? And this is because the EU is largely self-sufficient in production for most uh, crops and food categories. Wait, what? The European Union isn't going to run out of food? Well, well, then why are we hearing certain political stakeholders, industry lobbyists and farmers claim that we must ramp up European food production? Hmm. Certainly, because a transition towards sustainable food systems would disrupt the business model of the agri-food industry. Last month, the CEO of Sygenta, a major agrochemical company, even called for an end to organic farming to avoid a quote-unquote worsening food crisis. But we just heard that Europe is producing enough food, you're going to tell me. Well, you're right. Yes, indeed. But the industry will stop at nothing to keep business as usual, even if it means using a human catastrophe to get what they want. However, given the situation, there's been calls to revisit EU legislation and EU strategies on agriculture going into the future and say, okay, well, the EU needs to massively increase its production of all agricultural products and maybe limit or get rid of environmental regulations. And as a researcher, I see this as a problem just given what we know about agronomy, what we know about the contribution of biodiversity to production capacity. And I don't see this as much as a feasible option going forward. I think if we leave behind big documents like the Farm to Fork strategy, which was published by the European Commission in 2020 to set out the, the vision for European agriculture going forward. I think if we leave this behind, we're putting ourselves in danger going into the future. At this stage of the discussion, it would be wise to ask a farmer's opinion, don't you think? Well, have no fear, I've got us covered. I asked David Peacock, a slow food farmer from Erdhof in Germany, if he thought producing more food was the answer, the silver bullet to guaranteeing food security. To be honest, I think it's an embarrassment that there are people who think we still have to produce more. 
on a global context because uh, I think as most of us know, it actually isn't the problem that, you know, there is enough being produced. Uh, it's not a problem of production. So I think it's uh, a wrong push of the agri, you know, of the lobbies. And uh, no, I, I would not agree uh, that uh, standards have to be uh, lowered to produce more. Uh, yeah, I think it's. I think the question is is uh, it's a good question, but I think, uh, or I feel embarrassed that there are still farmers who believe we have to produce higher yields. I, I think farmers uh, farmers should firstly uh, seriously think about producing food and seriously think about producing food for people they know and uh, possibly for their locality or for their, you know, their region uh, and stop trying to produce food as a commodity for, for the global markets. And uh, I think that's actually fairly simple. Mm, but infrastructure, which we have, is, has now turned into a different one, uh, which isn't necessarily producing food. The simple answer to produce more is, is, is one which we've been trying for... <laughs> for a long time, uh, and it's not one which is going to solve the problem because the problem isn't that we're not producing enough, the problem is the distribution of what we produce. And yet, agri-food industries and their lobbyists are pushing for more food production. The problem is that for this, they need more arable land, which is why the European Commission is considering granting them the permission to start cultivating protected land dedicated to nature restoration. According to Nick from IPS Food, this would not bring the expected results. The problem with, with trying to raise food production uh, in those regions, as, as the European Commission is trying to do by, by giving farmers exemptions from, from environmental rules, the problem is that you then end up producing food, cultivating land uh, that has high biodiversity value, so a high cost to nature from, from cultivating it, um, but actually has pretty low value as, as a productive resource. So you're not going to get much more food from producing on that land and what you are going to get is more environmental damage and that's simply going to undermine productivity and resilience in the longer term. Fortunately, several important European stakeholders have stood up to defend sustainable agriculture, biodiversity protection and the EU's flagship food policy, the EU Farm to Fork Strategy. One of them is Franz Timmermans, Vice President of the European Commission. Back in April, in the heat of debates surrounding Europe's response to the war in Ukraine and the food crisis, he crossed the T's and dotted the I's at the European Parliament, describing the EU farm to fork strategy as a lifeline for agriculture, not a threat. It is quite something that some people pretend that we have the risk of food shortages in Europe, which is not the case. There is a problem, of course. Uh, because of Ukraine and Russia, with the international wheat and maize markets, etc. Yes, a serious problem. But to scare people into believing that we might not have food on our table in Europe is irresponsible and frankly so incredibly um, dishonest that we should not go down that road. And if we don't understand that farm to fork is an attempt to save agriculture, not to punish agriculture in light of the devastating effect of biodiversity loss and, and, and climate change effects on food production globally, then we are really, really um, uh, uh, in, a, in, a wrong, in a wrong attitude. Our citizens are already so terribly worried about so many things, and they are right to be worried about many things. But let's not add to their anxieties with false problems just to 
try and safeguard your economic uh, position in certain sectors. And I can't plead enough for this. And please, let's work together on this. It is worth reminding that food security is primarily at risk due to climate change. If our soil is depleted, if vegetal and animal species are disappearing, and if we drive our entire ecosystem to extinction, how can we possibly ensure food security? This is where the EU farm to fork strategy and the transition towards sustainable farming come in. Instead of intensifying production, many actions can be taken that can have a real and long-lasting impact on Europe's and the world's food security. Nick from IPS Food tells us more about them. Our view is that there are lots of other things that can be done first before we try to raise food production. Um, there, are, there are things that can be done to shift from one type of production to another. So rather than trying to just in, increase total production of cereals, for example, we, we could be looking at uh, reducing livestock numbers and, and in doing so reducing the demand for animal feed and allowing markets to adjust with more food than being produced for human consumption. We could be shifting um, land and resources away from biofuels and back, back towards production. There are lots of things that could be done to increase access to food globally, because, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is mostly a crisis of, ac crisis of access and availability. The food is there, it's just not getting to the people who need it. So even in wealthy regions like Europe, um, governments could be doing much more to ensure that poor people can afford food, um, even at the highly inflated prices we're seeing now. So all of those things are possible. We can do them all now. Um, and, and all of those things can be done without undermining the resilience of food systems. Then and only then should we think about raising total food production. And what does sustainable agriculture look like on the ground? Let's hear David Peacock's answer. I think one of the biggest, uh, fairly obvious things is that if, if you have a monoculture, so if you have a monoculture of, let's say, just corn, then it's basically a haven for pests to come in and, and destroy that corn. Now, if it's a corn beetle or, or different pests, then, then this is a haven. And in order to get rid of them, you, you, you know, generally spray them then with pesticides, killing them. Mm. And for us, we, we don't have any monocultures. And uh, we're also, you know, our inputs are fairly low, uh, but, but what we grow is very vast. So, for example, you would not find on my, my, my farm, now I'm embarrassed uh, in, in some sense of this, if, if you look at our rye, uh, this is a winter, winter crop rye, it looks fairly clean. It doesn't really look very organic, your first impression of it. But if you look beneath kind of the, you know, the straw, then you find that underneath the straw, there are many, many different uh, crops, many, many different uh, plant species. And they l imitate nature a lot more because in nature, you very rarely find one thing, you know, there on its own. And so through a good arable plan and through uh, uh, basically mixed cropping, you actually uh, reduce the need of, of any anything other than kind of your crop. So you don't need to buy fertilizer. You don't necessarily need to buy uh, pesticides. You do not need uh, your fungicides because we're letting the field regenerate and carry itself as it is. So alternatives to intensive monocultures do exist and they work. And unlike what the industry wants us to believe, they're not an impossible goal to achieve. But they do call for a complete transformation of the way we produce food. 
it sounds simple. There are certain rules which are fairly important. You know, the mixed cropping has to kind of be planned. Otherwise, you might end up growing two things uh, next to each other that don't <laughs> don't necessarily like each other. Not not everything in the plant world uh, uh, is is uh, is made for each other. Mm, but the productivity of this and the security of this, if you mixed crop, is is also firstly you have more than one harvest. So, for example, if we have uh, let's take our rye, uh, then you have the crop on let's say five hectares. We have the rye, so, so rye for flour, for bread. Then we have the straw, and because we've seeded underneath the rye, uh, we also have uh, either pasture for the cows then through autumn into winter, or we can make hay or silage again from this field. And in the next year, we don't even need to work the field because the grass is already there and already established. So we have a lot lower input, but we're actually harvesting a lot more per square meter. This is kind of one example of how with, with a mixed farming system, you actually make a lot more per, per square meter or per hectare uh, by, by integrating uh, as many species and as many uh, plants as possible into, into the crop rotation. There is no way around it. Global food systems will continue to be afflicted by crises and uncertainties over the coming years and decades. But by acting responsibly now, we will ensure that Europe is well-placed to face possible future crises. At Slow Food, we call on Europe to support farmers to undertake an agroecological transition, notably by ensuring they and farm workers have a fair income. In particular, we need to support small-scale agroecological producers as they are key to ensuring food sovereignty and protecting food biodiversity. Thank you so much, Alice, for leading this conversation and thanks to all our listeners for supporting the Sphin podcast. If you like this episode, share it with your friends. And also, if you have suggestions for topics you would like us to discuss, please get in touch with me at podcast at slowfoodyouthnetwork.org. Finally, I suggest you follow Slow Food Europe on Twitter for the latest advocacy updates with a slow perspective. Have a lovely day. Ciao!